Welcome to everybody. Today we are joined in a conversation with me, Jyoti Bra, uh, with the National Vice Chair of the Communist Party of Kenya, who is Booker Omole. And we are really so grateful to you, Booker, for sparing the time to talk to us today. So thank you. Thank you very much, Jyoti Bra and uh, Comrade. You've also been doing a great work with the your YouTube channel, and uh, we studied with a lot of great interest uh, here in Nairobi, especially to try and understand the, uh, you know, the thinking, uh, particularly in Europe, around the progressive and the revolutionary movement. So we are very grateful that we can get a chance to connect and uh, just to give a reassurance that our struggle is one. Fantastic. Thank you. And we're so glad that uh, you have been able to make use of our materials. I think one of the one of the legacies of living in the oldest uh, imperialist country is that we speak the language that is the uh, kind of lingua franca of the world. As a result of that, it's everybody's second choice of language is English. And uh, of course, in Kenya, you were colonized by the British. As a result, what it means for us as a small organization is anything we have to offer uh, to communists anywhere in the world uh, is quite easily understood by many people. And that's uh, that's very nice for us to be able to make that contribution, I have to say. Um, so I just want to get right into it with you. Just on that topic, you know, Kenya was a British colony. Uh, most British workers today, even if they are aware of that fact, which I have to say many of them are not, um, it's not a history they know anything about at all. So do you think it'd be possible to tell us just a little bit about the colonial period and your liberation struggle in Kenya? Thank you very much, uh, comrade. First of all, there are uh, two sides of the narratives in regard to the, now we call it the Kenyan War of Independence because um, in the olden days, we were not able to use the word war because uh, of um, its maybe its effects. But there is a consistent narratives that has been uh, mainly in uh, the reactionary centers that our liberation was negotiated <laughs> and that uh, the land and uh, Freedom Army, who was later called the Mau Mau, did not, you know, defeat the British uh, Imperial Army in Kenya. And uh, of course, uh, for us who bother to understand its historical trajectory, we do understand that the amount of um, assault and the amount of casualties were very unbearable uh, for the British, the colonial British to continue to retain Kenya as a colony. And it's also particularly interesting to know that Kenya was a colony, not a protectorate, like for example, Uganda. That means the colonial British had not just an interest in exploiting the natural resources in Kenya, 
but it was also geared towards displacement, massive displacement of a people, so that they prepare the Kenyan territory, you know, to be occupied. And um, this they did in a very ingenious ways because, and even now we need to appreciate when we're organizing how powerful the propaganda of the colonizer was and uh, how today that propaganda can also be used to turn up people against themselves and in actual sense to hate themselves and collaborate within the you know the advancement of actually a group or a minority of group of people that are actually interested to you know oppress them exploit them repress them so the first tool for the British Empire at that time, um, we cannot only just articulate even the internal factors that were that the British Empire was struggling within the colonies, particularly Kenya, but there are also other external events that must have influenced, um, you know, the defeat of the empire. And one of the key tools that they used was to divide the people among tribal lands. And um, you remember that even today, I don't know how the, the residents of Britain actually perceive that the only cultural or outfits that comes from Kenya that is recognized as a traditional outwear is the Maasai. You know, that's a very colonial legacy in actual sense, because the Maasai community was the biggest collaborators with the, the British, uh, the colonial British. So their culture, their dressing was exalted. And even now, sometimes when I travel to Europe, I still see them, you know, some artifacts of Maasai and even the Maasai houses. And some people want to make it look like that is the Kenyan culture, because that is the colonial perspective of how um, the African history wants to be told in that sense. But the British left us very divided uh, tribally. In fact, the Kikuyu community, which did not resist just because they were Kikuyu a Kikuyu community, they resisted because they had occupied the most fertile highlands that the British were interested in. So they were the first people to suffer displacement. But the colonial propaganda wanted us to believe that they actually resisted just because they were the Kuyu community. And therefore, the advancement of resistance against the British occupation in Kenya in other sector, they will want to portray it as if it was a tribal resistance, that the resistance was ingrained in a particular tribe who did not want British civilization. Well, in actual sense, the issue was about land and the Gikui community was the first to be displaced because they occupied the most fertile land. So you can see that the resistance axis that touches, touched like two various tribes that were basically you know the most affected were the Luo community and the Gikuyu community because the Luo offered labor and there was a lot of you know unpaid work and almost uh, you know 
slavery in the white plantation farmers. So again, there was a big resistance from the Luo community, not just because there were Luos, but because they were struggling to fight against the repressive you know, regime that tend to exploit their labor and they will be given you know things like um, a mirror you know to look into themselves as a form of payment or a bicycle in the name of um, compensation for land and then so the tribal conflict that now we see in the kenyan society today was actually ingrained by the colonial legacy of britain and that made them aware that they could rule us even in a much way. And I think the events of the World War I and um, particularly also World War II uh, made significant contribution uh, towards the advancement of our resistance struggle in Kenya, particularly when the world powers recruited people from their colonies to go and fight and die for them. It was a big revelation that indeed the white man also dies. That was the message that Dedan Kimati came with home after, because he was fighting on the side of the, of the oppressor's government within the World War II. Now, when he arrived home, he, he was able to, first of all, deconstruct the white supremacy propaganda and uh, actually bring it that indeed we fought with them and they are also possible to die. And uh, he went quickly to start the peasant movement, the fight for land. So uh, I know in some progressive or revolutionary literature, some people will want to portray Dedan Kimathi as somebody who was maybe a communist. But for us, we think we do not need to give Deran Kimathi a communist tag. He was a progressive nationalist who mobilized the poor peasants that were deprived from land. And that is one important, solid you know, organization that broke the back of the colonial government because after that they started to manufacture homemade homemade guns and then he realized that he was making mistakes and then he he, he the the land defense force that now you call Mau Mau mainly in the colonial literature which we have also accepted anyway th that they indeed were able to attack the colonial army in their most vulnerable positions. And that was the introduction of the guerrilla, the guerrilla warfare in our, in, in, in our war of independence. So this uh, land defense force that is properly known as Mau Mau formed an axis that crossed the, mainly the tribes that suffered the most in the hands of the 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 white minority rule at that time. So you realize that, for example, the people who are manufacturing homemade guns were based in Nakuru, and they used to use women. And it brings out the importance of women in our revolutionary war, who were able to conflage and deliver, you know, guns and information, medicine, food, 
to the uh, to their husbands, their children that were fighting for their rights. Uh, you know, just the mere right. In fact, the first demand was not that uh, we wanted independence. The first demand was we wanted land. We wanted right to land. We wanted to live with dignity, because. The logic was we welcome the British with open hands when they come. We saw them, we smiled, we offered them food. But why were they interested to displace us? Because for us, we saw them as brothers and sisters who have come, you know, to visit us, that we need to offer water. But for them, they saw an opportunity to exploit and plunder. So that was the the starting point of the revolutionary movement that was led by land defense force at that time but also there is another center that um, mainly were intellectual and they had gone to manchester and certain uh, cities in europe to learn for example in the african continent you know kwame nkrumah for example mwalimu julius nyerere and in our country here we had jomo kenyatta who of course, later on sold the process. But there are certain influence that we must appreciate that through our engagement with the, the European community was an opening eye for the fight for total independence in our country. Because remember when, at that time also, there was a lot of um, racist uh, talk within the intellectual circles particularly in philosophy. And um, you, you could um, probably understand why communism was being rejected or even not just rejected, but there was a skepticism about communism. This skepticism was coming through the dense document in philosophy that were very Eurocentric and anti-Africa. And that was the origin of the polemics between African philosophy and the Western metaphysical thought. Because the, the, the thinkers in Africa who had been told that, for example, if you read several documents of Hegel, for example, we are displayed as people are innocent of thought and uh, we do not have any ability of rigor in that sense. So you can understand why the so-called African philosopher kings took a longer time to even uptake that communism could be interrogated because they looked at it as a body of knowledge that has a very, very dense uh, you know, literature that were anti the African thought. So that will divide even the African philosophy because the, the, the origin of the African philosophy, if you look at it at that time, originated from reaction to the racist thinking of the Western philosophy. So you could realize that some, certain books were published, like, for example, they went to even stress the importance that the spa, Socrates, Plato, that they might have reflected in their works that there were certain learnings that took place in Egypt, and therefore Egypt was the origin of the body of knowledge. But that, as it may, when you come home, what I wanted to portray that there were nationalist forces, 
progressive nationalist forces, and there was the most hostile and organized peasants forces. One was influenced by only mere thinking because they did not suffer the same material conditions. For example, Jomo Kenyatta was not a poor man. Jaramogi Obingo Dinga was not a poor man. They were not landless people. So they only got exposure and they were fighting for the right of independence. In fact, all their rhetoric was talking about self-rule, while the peace and movement was talking about right to land and dignity. Why it's important to bring out this clarity, you will realize that the people who actually sold the African independence to the British were mainly intellectuals that were criticizing British based on the right for the African people to rule themselves but they see themselves as the rulers. So for them, they wanted the whites to live so that they rule Kenya. But their conditions were not dire as the majority of the peasants and the African people. And that brings the most critical point why we are saying that the Mau Mau had no way to negotiate. For them, it was land or death. But for people like Jomo, it, their conditions were different. Because remember, Jomo, who now we call our father of independence, only published one literature, which was mainly to criticize, you know, the white minority rule and bring out that Africa and African countries, particularly Kenya, was able to govern itself. That landed him in jail. And, you know, in history, once you are arrested, then you become a point of unity, regardless of how backward you are. So we had two people, one in the forest and one in jail. So Joma was in jail, Dedan Kimati was in the forest fighting. Every person that genuinely loved the Kenyan people recognizes the profound leadership of the Mau Mau and the profound leadership of uh, you know Jomo Kenyatta through one newsletter that he did published. Now the intensification of the fight, like now you see, the Mau Mau were able to lay ambush. They were able to even put casualties on the white-owned highland farms. That means they will wake up in the morning and realize that there was a surprise attack. Just as compared of what is now today happening in Gaza. And then the British government will react the same way. They will bomb the forests. But again, when they go there with boots on the ground, they will be shot at. So they started to create a myth. But the actual sense was that the Mau Mau people knew the terrain. They had every advantage to defeat the weak um, you know colonial army that had only one strength which was the air power but when it came to boots on ground the mau mau was undefeated so the point reached where the colonial army were facing several casualties the british economy the united kingdom was degenerating they had done quite a bit of investment in terms of the railway line which wasn't bringing them as much money as they want 
So it was degenerating. The British Empire started to decline. So they had to choose whether they will want to decline in dignity or in humiliation. And the same condition comrade today is facing the United States. The United States empire is declining, just like the Spanish empire, just like many empires in history. But they don't have the humbleness to say that we want to die like an empire with everyone, or we want to reconcile and decline as an empire and leave a new era to come into place. So we can see that the British, in that way, I think they were quite clever. First of all, they wanted to create a leader, and they realized that uh, if they create a black leader, and this is a strategy that has been used by the liberation, you know, by the colonizers across Africa. They have one person in jail, and they have the militants outside jail, and they try to create either outside the jail or inside the jail. Whoever will sell out the process of independence will then be handed the power. And that is what particularly happened in Kenya when the British realized that they're going to lose the war, they started to create alternative leaders that could retain British interest in Kenya. So they wanted a black prefect, they wanted a lapdog, they wanted um, a puppet. So the negotiation started not with the land defense force because they will not negotiate. So the British prefer to negotiate with the intellectuals, the nationalists. And they started with one of the most progressive nationalists that we celebrated the Communist Party of Kenya, and that is Jaramogi Oginga Odinga, who was the leader of one of the main leaders of the uh, independence movement at that time. And every time they visited him with goodies, with bribes, he said that release Jomo Kenyatta to lead us to independence. So they failed in their tactic to make a leader outside. That leads them to start to negotiate with Jomo Kenyatta, who was in jail. And Jomo Kenyatta accepted the British conditions. And one of the most important is that all the white settlers that wanted to stay will then retain all their land as it is. That is why we have Karen Blitzen. That is why we have, um, you know, for example, the white settlers that still own. That's why we have Finlay's, for example, and many other big uh, uh, British uh, conglomerates here at home that still continue to own tracks of that. That negotiations was already done with them. whoever will be our founding father at that time. And then the second was that those who do, did not want to stay in the post-independence Kenya will be compensated. That means the land that they robbed the people, they will be paid for it. And it was clear that uh, Jomo Kenyatta knew that this will not be acceptable to the peace and movement. 
And that's why when we are organizing comrades, in fact, it has even informed the policy in the Communist Party of Kenya that we must study the class character of the people that take leadership position and those who are more vulnerable to the opportunism that are mainly the petty bourgeoisie stratas and not the working class. So if you have a communist party of, uh, that is built around only the petty bourgeoisie structures of the society, then you will suffer opportunism and revisionism. And as fate may have it, we had what the British called and negotiated because a few days before the total negotiation was taken out and the so-called, I don't know if you know that, our 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 constitution was called the Manchester Constitution because it was written in Manchester. They arrested through you know leads of the some of the sellouts within the freedom movement. They arrested our freedom hero, Dedan Kimati. They were very quick to try and to execute him. The main logic in doing that was they did not want any leader that could be created out of Dedan Kimathi if he stayed in jail. So they said that if Dedan Kimathi and Jomo Kenyatta were all in jail, then Dedan Kimathi will make a more popular leader than Jomo Kenyatta. Well, Jomo Kenyatta had already sold his soul for the British colonizers. So what basically happened was that Dedan Kimathi was executed, and was buried in a non-location. Even today, we are still demanding for a decent burial. We are still demanding to know the grave, the graveyard of Dedan Kimathi to give him a decent send-off. So that was a sham independence that the British left us with, because now we had all the colonial structures in place. But the only thing that has changed is that now a black man was in charge of the colonial state and the white man was gone. But Jomo Kenyatta realized that he was so weak even to defeat the remnants of the Mau Mau forces after the execution of their leader. And he went ahead and negotiated another military uh, package that allow now what we call Batuk the British army that is stationed in Nanyuki town until date to date. That Nanyuki, that Nanyuki base for the British forces was essentially meant to protect the British interest. And in the event that there was an uprising to, you know, to overthrow their puppet in the name of Jomo Kenyatta, then that British uh, you know, base was meant to assist and neutralize any threat. And that is why even to date, we continue to insist that the Batuk, the British army base in Nanyuki is a threat to our national sovereignty and not a source of, uh, you know, security. Now, interestingly, that is the position that we are in today within the Communist Party of Kenya, we have a neo-colonial government in place with a comprado class at its helm that needs to have uh, alliances of oppressions with our former colonizers and also particularly the imperialist forces. 
But something so also, an incident happened in the history of our country that could be very significant and also very interesting, that there was some element of fight between British and America in regard to interests. Because after the, because remember Jomo Kenyatta died in 1978, not too long after independence, but the British brought in and supported his deputy who was a dictator, who actually ran with one party dictatorship. But the most problematic was that Kanu, who was, which was the party, had very progressive elements in it. In fact, they even had the Patrice Lumumba Institute that was meant to train the Kanu members on issues to do with ideology. And this did not augur well with the colonial British. So they decided to bring one man who could disrupt that arrangement within the Kenya National African Union, and also to reduce the militancy of the Kenyan workers. Because there was already an alliance of the Kenyan workers, even though the British wanted to set the African workers against the Indian workers. But through the ex exemplary leadership of um, his uh, renowned trade unionist that was murdered in our country, he was called Mackensen. He was able to unite the proletariat movement and the militancy of the trade union movement that will integrate all the uh, the Indian workers that came in to build the railway and also the African workers. This axis worried the West a lot and they needed to break it. And that led to the death of Makan Singh and the rise of one puppet of the West that uh, if you read uh, the literatures in the West, they always praise him and that is Tom Boyer. Tom Boyer was, uh, was a propped, actually a fake labor organizer that was actually sponsored by the West. But the fight of interest came in that the British uh, was getting more construction job. The American was out of the cold. The British was still influencing our domestic policy. And the American brought in this issue that the Kenyan needed most because the Kenyans were fighting for multipartism. So in a way to age out the British, the Americans supported multipartism in Kenya, but they said only communists should not be allowed, but every other party could be allowed to be registered. So in that end, the introduction of multipartism that was more of American-like or the British-like, where two or three or four capitalist parties are competing against the Ajam was introduced and the United States installed now their hegemony in the East African region through you know, the Nairobi consensus. And that is how we see a lot of influence now between British now comes in a distance third in our own evaluation.
The United States um, is highly more influential in terms of our policy direction. And in terms of even the Israels now have still much strategic interests in our country, particularly even in our security apparatus and in our strategic investments like food and in that kind of sense. So you can see that the neocolonial environment puts us in a way that we cannot safeguard our sovereignty. We cannot be in charge of our own food. We cannot even be in charge of our own education. So we still have a colonial um, uh, consumption of, uh, in terms of um, uh, our syllabus of what we are taught in school. So we've also seen um, deliberate efforts when the United States you know, stepped their foothold in, in Nairobi is the neoliberal policies. That was the anticlimax of the 1990s where we had now the IMF and World Bank coming in to even, you know, exaggerate the consequences of the neocolonial government against, uh, you know, the, the ordinary Kenyan people. So what has been the situation now? Uh, Comrade, it's even hard to contemplate that Kenya has been taken out of any direction towards industrialization. So it basically means that Kenya has been reduced into only an exporter of cheap raw materials. That is why when the biggest coffee farms or tea farms will not want to do any value addition or even create jobs in terms of industrialization here at home, but they would rather pluck the tea, harvest the coffee, take it into an auction, and ship it and bring it, and then bring it in in terms of um, in terms of uh, finished products so they also now see the kenyan population just as a market and a producer of raw materials and then they start wondering why we don't have jobs while we are aware that all the jobs have been exported everything when you come to nairobi everything you see is second hand there are secondhand clothes. That means the textile industry is on its knees. There are secondhand cars. So the automobile sector is almost non-existent. Now, these puppets of the West that talks about job creation of the youth, poverty alleviation, are only trying some dangerous, you know, neoliberal experiments. For example, they are trying to encourage free enterprising telling the young people to take loans, to sell artifacts on the streets, and even building certain abstract stories, how they made their wealth. And you know, the rich people, comrade, they are very arrogant in the sense that they do not want to admit that they have made wealth through theft. So they create some stories around this wealth to, to, you know, to take the young people out of reality. That is why every time you see President Ruto here saying that he arose from being a chicken farmer into a billionaire. But the fact of the matter that this young man who has been in government for his entire life has accumulated wealth through only state-sponsored corruptions and nothing in terms of even genuine business in his heart. But according to him, he is trying to sell a silly narrative that the young people can be hawkers in the street they can play chess, all this Hollywood nonsense, and then they will make billions out of it. So that is the dire situation 
but there is a lot of hope because there is also resistance on one side. So we see there is a lot in the event that we even became overt, which I will tell you in your next question. When we started to organize overtly, we cannot cope up even with the number of young people coming to seek refuge in the Communist Party of Kenya. So we always say that the failed policies of this neo-colonial government is actually the biggest recruiter to the communist movement in our country. Maybe that is in brief the history of the, the, the colonial period, but also you could draw certain parallels. Why is it that now there is a lot of riots, for example, in Paris? How is it that when there are demonstrations in London, they are um, not just riots, and uh, those are riots? And, uh, Probably the British government or the French government cannot relate that the so-called, you know, all this wealth that was looted, we sometimes have some bitter exchanges when we meet, when we say that Europe is, you know, a country that is built by corpses and blood of the African race. But by and large, it's true because even if you look at the national health insurance, for the national health services, the NHS, who finances it? I don't think it's the British working class that has continued to finance those social services there. Every time there is, for example, let us take um, a line like coffee. The coffee worker was being paid less than two cents, two dollar cents for working the whole day. Then, of course, when the finally the final product comes in, it is sold in very exorbitant prices. So it basically means that the surplus that the colonial government had enabled them to retain and to delay rebellion and militancy at home. But at the moment, they are not looting as much as they used to loot. So they need to start living with the new reality that without so much loot from the colonial countries, they are faced with a danger that the dominance class, the ruling class in Europe and the United States have all the reasons to fear, just like their Arab counterparts, counterparts are fearing that oil will run out and there will be no need, uh, you know, there will be more uh, there will be no way to contain, you know, a people that has been suppressed, not just politically, but even economically for a long time. So such are the parallels that comrades we can raise and debate to advance the our organizations of the working class. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Booker. You know, while I was listening to you, I was starting, I was making notes of parallels. I was thinking about things you were saying. There are so many directions we could have really interesting conversations and then I thought of all the other things I want to talk to you about so you're going to have to come back on another day so I can bring all of those up um because there are other things that I wanted to try and to to try and get to today um but you know listening to you talk about your liberation struggle it it there are so many similarities between so many other struggles and we can see those those parallels and and it helps us to understand the essence of imperialism I think when you can see the parallels in the way it acts everywhere that on the one hand the story of kenya is unique 
it's the Kenyan story. But on the other hand, the themes that go through it, you know, divide and rule, <laughs> expropriation of the land, disconnection of the people from their land, um, and this turning of a whole economy to service the economy of a country somewhere far away. Um, you know, these are, are very common themes. And this way of um, finding a leadership when you come towards, when the pressure for liberation builds up so, so greatly um, that you're going to have to pass on at least the appearance of rule to a local class, finding the way to massage that so that you're still in control of the economic levers of the country, so that the new political rulers are just a face for your continued looting. You know, this is a this is a story we've seen again and again, isn't it? And and something we have to, I think, take take account of and learn to understand. And it sort of brings us to to um, Lenin's teachings on the state. You know that the state machinery that was left behind in the colonies and just handed over to the new ruling classes who came from, as you said, the privileged sections of society, they're running a state machinery that's, that is perfected for looting. It's not perfected for developing the economy and you know everything that goes with it, the way people are educated, the way the judiciary works, all of the norms of democracy that you just sort of inherit unthinkingly and say, oh, well, now we've got democracy because there's some black people in charge. And then you, you know, it takes such a long time for the people to realize, hang on a minute, this is just what we had before, right? You know, you've done all this celebrate, done all this fighting and all this celebrating. You're like, yes, freedom, freedom, optimism. And then after a while, you're like, why does nothing feel different? You know, and uh, this is a, um, you know, a common story in many parts of the world where the national liberation struggle has stopped short of what the people really were fighting for. Um, so I wanted to bring in a question to you about the Labour Party, because something that we find very important and significant when when we're looking at the period of your liberation war is that at that time, British imperialism was being run by a Labour government, and not just any Labour government, but the government which built the welfare state, right, which is held up to us by the entire, what we would call the fake left, all kinds of parties that call themselves socialist and communist, and the bourgeois media, they all tell us that the government of Clement Attlee in 1945 was a socialist government, that the welfare state was a socialist project, uh, and that we never had it so good. This was the best period of, of uh, British socialism and, and the people who were in charge were, were these wonderful, you know, human-centered people. Well, on the one hand, you know, yes, we got the NHS. Yes, we got council housing. Yes, we got education. But what a lot of British people didn't then understand and still don't understand when they, when they idealize this period and look back to it as a golden era is that the, the money to pay for these concessions. And these concessions were made under pressure of revolutionary upsurge across Europe and a strong communist movement, even in Britain. But definitely, you know, the, the victory of the communists over fascism in World War II, the victory of the communist partisans in all the occupied places, the rising national liberation movement. There was a big fear of the imperialists that their whole system was about to go. They made these huge concessions to the working classes in the imperialist countries, but they the, the oppressed masses in the rest of the empire paid. We know, as communists, we are aware that to pay for these big social programs, one of the things that was done, and there was more taxation in Britain as well, 
there were some very high rates of taxation for people with a lot of money. It was they never stopped complaining about it. But that was only a small part of the story. A big part of the story was intensified looting and suppression in the colonies. We know that the uh, Malay liberation movement was really uh, strongly oppressed. And the Kenyan liberation movement was, you know, drowned in blood during this period in order to keep, you know, intensifying the the extraction of wealth from Kenya. So uh, what I really wanted to ask you, I'm take a long time to ask this question. Do Kenyans know that that was a Labour government that was doing that? Do people in Kenya ever notice or think about a change of regime in London or to them is Tory and Labour completely irrelevant question? Now, thank you, Jyoti. And um, Conrad, first of all, this reminds me of the debates that were taking place among the left during the liberation wars in Africa. And that will help us to understand that there were people even among the left that thought that in actual sense colonialism was actually a process of civilization of the black race and there were also the other camp that insisted that you cannot be a socialist or a communist and you're not in the solidar in solidarity with the oppressed people, particularly the colonized people of the global south. I think that brought a clear line between the second, second and a half and the third international. And that is why for some of us who are students of Lenin, we are proud even today to call our party a Marxist-Leninist party from that history. And that influenced a lot of liberation movement in the global south. Indeed, that was the debates among the left. But then now let us try to unpack what you call the liberal democracy. In Kenya, we say the, 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 the desire to advance our politics to be like Britain or the United States. That's what the ruling government continued to tell us, that we want to be as democratic, we want to be as honest, we want to be to embrace good governance, the European style or the United States style. But the Communist Party of Kenya holds a very strong opinion that the Labour Party and Conservative Party, just like the Democrats and the Republican Party, they only particularly they might look different but not in content maybe in form but in terms of their attitude in terms of their foreign policy in terms of even their content in the national policy these two political parties either it is republican versus democrats they are just two sides of the same coin and the same too, in fact, Labour Party, we even now have more evidence profoundly to even unpack it further, because you have seen how the Labour Party has dealt with the progressive people that tried to arise within the Labour Party and even to bring certain positions that actually go against the status quo of imperialism. So 
the Labour Party in itself and in its construction only unsapped the advantage of that time of the rising of the working class in Europe to try and gather in support. And they were lucky that they had the resources from the colonies to actually bribe the British working class, to avoid their immediate overthrow, but to delay it even you know, further. So in actual sense, we are aware of um, the Labour Party, their policies. Even now, whether the Labour Party is in government or the Conservative Party is in government, what they might differ maybe in talk. But in terms of uh, their foreign policies, we do not see much in regard to the uh, the British um, as as it is our former uh, colonizer. For example, we could even be able to discuss more frankly. Even why is it that the Labour Party is reluctant to tell us sorry? We colonized you people. It's word for it. We have not even started to say that. Okay, now that you've said you're sorry, we want compensation. They would rather just leave it as uh, you know as uh, the way it is. And even when there is um, you know pressure from the activists and the progressives in the country to file cases on compensation, they have been very determined to make sure that those cases do not lead into a situation whereby every atrocities that was committed by the British government in Kenya is going to be declassified. So they run into the negotiation table. They start to throw money around the people that have filed the case to try and have an out-of-court settlement. So in that way, what is it that the British authorities fear? What is it that they did that they are still humiliated about, that they cannot accept that they did? So our position in, in, in the British politics, and just like in the United States politics, is that even though the British lost its um, empire to the United States and opted to have to form an alliance of oppression of the South, their policies towards Kenya has not changed. We have still seen the arrogance, whether there is the Conservative or the Labour Party, the British base is still the permanent reminder of repressive uh, colonial regime. And in fact, they do not even regret about it. Uh, they still continue to carry out extrajudicial killings within the Kenyan territory. There are several uh, documented rape cases of the British com uh, you know, uh, army and commanders here. They still continue to exploit in terms of, uh, of land occupation within a nuclear environment. So we, we only are dealing with unapologetic. Sometimes we are asked some questions, you know, and uh, they will tell you, Booker, if, um, you know, and, and such narratives are also back here at home. When we hold the Comprado class more accountable uh, in debates, they probably will tell us that, oh, it's my grandmother, it's my grandfather, it's my great-grandmother who did it. But at least uh, we also do not fail to remind them that Okay, fair enough, they did it, but then why do you want to retain certain positions of privileges? Why don't you want to, why do you want to retain the land that you know very well your grandfather or your great-grandfather robbed the, you know, the native people 
and still complain that you you know you're not the one who did that so to advance that debate that as so long as the neoliberal globalization particularly imperialism dominates the world and those parties in europe whether they are the conservatives or the labor party their foreign policy will be to maintain the hegemony of the dominance class in the global north and that limits them in terms of making any progressive decisions unless they are forced to like for example now we have seen in other african countries they have been forced to do some concessions then they will do it to preserve again the dominance class but not because they willingly wants to do it so that expands to another debate of even the moral issues that are involved that do we think that the colonial britain will have its moral compass to say that what they committed the, atro the atrocities that they committed particularly in kenya that they can own up and say so but if they own up to say so then what they are saying is that they are putting the interest of the empire the interest of the few majority that continue to dominate the world that the entire literature that we were taught in education since i was in in, in you know in my lower primary was actually you know a narrative that was basically uh, you know targeted to take me out of reality and i think uh, that will cause a horrible situation because Sometimes, uh, comrade, we have uh, an ideological school within the party, and we recruit very moderate comrades sometimes, particularly most interested people sometimes are from the universities. But by the time they reach their third or fifth month in our party institute, you can see the level of anger, the level of uh, how they feel that um, they have been betrayed not just by the British government, the then British government, but that the entire, even the current neo-colonial system, and how they have uh, their, their, their parents, for example, hold into that false hope that there is a brighter future, where in actual sense, they were being prepared for a slaughterhouse through miseducation, through, you know, just through uh, enslavement. And, and, and you could see, how determined they are to change uh, this system. So that that's my few comments in regard to the uh, you know the labor. Maybe even later on you can ask um, uh, the labor leaders what are their you know what are their policies towards, uh, for example, decolonization of Palestine, which the British government is directly responsible for causing that problem there then uh, the labor counterpart may not be much different from the conservatives. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, what we tend to find, Booker, is that um, the Labour Party is more rabidly pro every imperialist aggression than the conservatives for the simple reason that the Labour Party is based in the labor aristocracy. The labor aristocracy is a section of the working class which is bribed from super profits of imperialism. It has no other way to maintain its privilege. 
it is totally loyal to the system, has always been one of the important, you know, this was a really important revelation of Lenin's back at, you know, more than 100 years ago. And it's one of the messages our party tries very hard to bring to the working class is that Labour, as a representative of the Labour aristocracy, is totally loyal and servile to British imperialism. Uh, and that's its number one priority, save British imperialism at any cost. And all of the window dressing about, you know, democratic values and civilization and being a bit left and being a bit more kind and nice to people, you know, it's, it's just that it's a garnish, it's window dressing, it's wishful thinking on the part of most of the people who follow that, that there's, you know, Tories are nasty and Labour is nice is the kind of, you know, uh, very basic way that a lot of people think about these things uh, who haven't really made a, a serious analysis. So it's very helpful to hear the perspective of somebody who's on the other end of these policies, because one of the hard things to get across to people in our country is, OK, you can have a sense of injustice, you can have a sense that things are wrong in the world, you can read Lenin. But the problem is we grew up inside this bubble and it's a bubble of lies, which is backed up by material privilege. And because of that, it's very hard for workers to really understand in the West what is imperialism. And it's very helpful for us to hear the reality of imperialism from people who've lived it. Uh, because, like I say, you know, we are we have we have this whole uh, fabrication of of of. of what our society is all about fed to us endlessly constantly and we live inside this this bubble where we're so cut off from the reality of what the system means that um you know and most kids all, all the way through their lives people in britain just it, it's very easy to live and never really know what the relationship is between britain and the imperialist countries and the rest of the world um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the development of a communist movement in your country and, and your party's kind of place place in that. You've, you've spoken a little bit about that, but when when did the communist movement start in Kenya? Um, ideally, the communist uh, movement started way, way just um, after independence, we could say. And um, what year was that, sorry? What year was independence just for the people? 1963. 1963. Okay. Yes. So, but before the independence, um, when we had um, the, there were still people that were aligned towards the USSR and also those that were aligned uh, to the United States. And of course, you know that Kenya was also a member of this non-aligned movement. Yes. So the communist movement started from the lecture halls in the University of Nairobi and through the underground study circles. Whoever wants to delve deeper into that period, you will realize that the communists at that time were mainly intellectuals within the universities and um, they were also supported they had a strong collaboration with the student movement at that time and uh, majority of your listener could probably know 
sometimes it's a big debate in our country where we want to say that they are revolutionaries and they are also writers of revolutionary material because um, it draws for us a clear um, you know a clear perspective from our own understanding so for example uh, if you ask me how 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 who inspired me to be a communist um, and majority of our members will have different experiences, but through the works of Ngugi Wadiong, uh, who was a very prolific writer under the defender of the Kenyan working class, he inspired me a lot in his literature when I was a university student at that time. And the fact that he even asked the, because the most departments, comrade, that are captured, within the public universities are normally the Department of Social Sciences. Uh, you know, uh, there is always a race to make sure that um, the departments of philosophy, the departments of history, the departments of social, um, you know, other social sciences, anthropology, are all captured. So the University of Nairobi had a problem because we had just had an independence that was sharp and the only people that were writing sharp criticism around that sham independence and trying to mobilize the kenyan people were the university lecturers and students so they were at at um, at fault in terms of how do we liberate the universities from all this um, radical literature and um, at that time, uh, the university as well, they used to do plays to reflect British um, colonialism, to reflect the, the struggles of the peasants, a particular one which um, was uh, basically inspired the majority of the peasants movement in our country, was again by the same professor Ngugiwa Diongo, and he wrote, I will marry when I want, which was really a covenant, but it was a very revolutionary play that made him arrested. He never mentioned any communism in it, but he was only inspiring the organization of the Agikuyu community that had actually suffered the brutal British colonialism to see that this independence that we have today was not, um, uh, it was actually a continuation of the struggle of the Kenyan working class and the poor majority. So there were massive arrests uh, after that. Uh, we had universities um, uh, and communism was declared illegal in Kenya. In fact, they passed on um, what they were calling seditious laws to make sure that even reading Das Capital of the Communist Manifesto will land you in jail. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of the underground movement. Because, you know, when, whenever we have uh, repression, there must always be resistance. So the universities had two prominent underground communist movement. There were political parties that were not registrable within the Kenyan law, and they operated 
only covertly. And that was, uh, one was by the Kiswahili name Mwakenya, and the one took after the Fidel Castro's inspiration, it was called the December 12 movement. So, um, and also there were contributors to the communist literature in um, Kenya. Or, for example, the Chinese embassy here in Nairobi distributed the Peking, uh, which was a publication that um, they had even to give it clandestinely because the authorities will arrest you just, you know, if you are a student and you're, you're just walking around the embassy of China, and then they will be arrested on loitering or with an intention to commit a crime or certain things like that. And that is why you will see that Mao is very close to us in its um, writings because uh, the Department of Foreign Press, uh, the, the Department of Foreign Languages that was actually instituted by Comrade uh, Chairman Mao supplied a lot of literature for us. And we also saw a lot of similarities between them. So that was a contributor. In the next door, uh, Ethiopia, they, there were fightings between, unfortunately, two communist movements or two apparent communist movements were fighting. But also there were publications that were being distributed from Mengistu government and uh, the people in exile in our country that continued to inspire. And since they had more experience in terms of underground movement, you will realize that all these literatures, all these leaflets were distributed in an underground manner. So uh, the USSR as well uh, contributed much in literature. Now, maybe I should tell you something more interesting that at that time, the lit communist literature was given to the Kenyan people. But now they come looking for it. There is no longer USSR or there is no China in place, but the young people come to ask, what is this that we are told is bad? So that we know about how bad it is. Because remember, after the victory of the United States in our country, communism was rejected, not by debate, but it was rejected, you know, without any debates. It was bad in itself and even bad to interrogate it, even bad to read it. That means the African race or the Kenyan people, according to the United States, and this is a tradition I think even in the United States still lives with them to date, that um, they want to reject anything, not from a point of merits or demerits, but just from a point of that is bad, don't do it, because um, you know the number of people murdered by the communists continue to increase every day. I don't know how, how many millions they are today, but they keep on adding numbers uh, to try and uh, possess a certain narrative. So we had external factors and internal factors contributing to the underground communist movement. But there is an, a significant event that happened in 1982 in our country that disrupted that organization. First, in 1982, the underground cells had gotten into the Kenyan security forces. And they were collaborating with particularly the Kenya Air Force, uh, you know, to organize for a regime change. 
But something strange happened that the, the Kenya Air Force that was also involved in these organizations lacked ideological clarity. For them, they saw an opportunity to be leaders in Kenya. So they decided to exercise, you know, a coup without the revolutionary leaders. And remember, we had uh, the biggest supporter of the Kenyan underground movement was Tanzania, which is our neighbor here, Julius Nyerere. So most of the people that were either being persecuted by the system found their way into Darasla, where they got to learn. And since there was a lot of debates during Nyerere's period in Tanzania, all the literature in regard to communism were availed to the people to debate them, in as much as also Nyerere limited that space only to one language, which was Swahili at that time. But in 1982, uh, there was an aborted coup that was that had been led, but that was led by the Kenya Air Force. And uh, this aborted coup was um, meant to overthrow dictator Moy. And just like any other reactionary government, that incident was used to make sure that any communist that was known or suspected was hanged. And some of them were exiled or they already left uh, during the coup. In fact, the few communists that have a history with the Communist Party of Kenya that survived that onslaught on the communists were basically young university students that the Swedish left party that was in government at that time negotiated uh, for their escape to go to Uppsala in Sweden. So that is why if you go to Sweden today, there is a small city of immigrants called Uppsala. You will find many Kenyans there because the young university student, mainly aged below 20, were, when they were released, they were sent to exile and they were accepted by the Swedish government there. Even our former chairperson, uh, Comrade Mwandawirum Ganga has that history. And um, after he was in prison for a very long time, he had to spend so many years in exile in Sweden. So what lessons do we learn from that, Comrade? And we, we keep on reminding our comrades that any act of adventure will not advance the wheels of the revolution. It will actually slow it down because from 1982 all the way to 2000, there was a lag, total silence. That means the revolutionary forces was almost extinguished in our country. Their mothers, their fathers, even who did not have relationship with them, were either in jail or exile. So that crackdown on the communists at that time any mistake that we do, especially without studying the balance of power, will only put our comrades in more danger. That is why we are very careful in terms of um, the candidates of um, what we say, they want to do an experiment, you know, uh, and put the entire revolutionary movement in jeopardy. 
So that actually happened. So what happened in um, during the 1992 after the coup was when the United States of America, with the help of the dictator Moin, brought in what they were calling multi-party democracy. The communists in exile seized that moment. And that is how we found home in the Social Democratic Party. So we have also a history with the Social Democratic Party. But the Social Democratic Party was not a revolutionary party. It was a reactionary Social Democratic Party. But it was a way in which the revolutionaries and the progressives could hide into to be able to advance their organizations. So for example, I joined the Social Democratic Party in the youth wing, uh, you know, way back just when it started. And many other comrades that are now in the party were also members of the Social Democratic Party at that time. But that was the what we call the overt way to operate. But the study circles, because remember from the learnings of learning, we must have full-time professional revolutionaries in the party who conduct uh, revolutionary education through study circles to build the bastions of the, of the party, which are in indeed are the cells that make the party. So there was a fight within the Social Democratic Party. There was always a struggle between the revolutionaries and the reactionaries. But the revolutionaries did not have a home. They had to stay there because any attempt to organize outside this liberal democracy will have ended up either going to jail. Because remember, those anti-communist laws were still being enforced to the left even at that time. So this fight had to take a different trajectory because people realized that this issue about multi-party democracy is not going to help them because the British and the United States made sure that even these parties were based on tribal lines. So that is how you realize that even currently, the, the people who are in mainstream politics, as we call them, they rely on their tribal majority in terms of votes. So this was a, a democracy for the elite. It was a democracy for the money banks, a democracy for those who have money, because without money, you could not succeed in that democracy. And um, it, it was advanced as a success story. And in fact, many times you hear some people talking about Kenya being one of the outstanding democracies in Africa, which for us, Kenya is still a dictatorship of capital, and we don't consider it as a democracy per se, especially in the absence of the Communist Party of Kenya. But moving forward, we started to mobilize not as communists, but all the progressives started to mobilize for the change of the Manchester constitution. Because now the focus moved from the demand for multi-party democracy and the people started to demand not just for the removal of the dictator, but also 
the change of the constitution. People wanted to have the constitution changed. And this will be a long bloody fight that many people, especially from the progressives and the revolutionaries, students, peasants, lost their lives in the streets to defend, uh, you know, to fight for uh, a constitutional review, uh, to be able to make sure that this constitution that we currently have now, that gives us a lot of freedom in terms of even in terms of organizing and expands both our civic and political space was only to be realized after, you know, in 2010. So almost over 10 years of bloodshed. And the people that ensured that there was no movement in this constitutional uh, reform program, were no, they were mainly the rulers in the West that were interested to continue to preach the rule of law. And now you realize that in our revolutionary organizing in Kenya, comrade, now even we don't talk about the rule of law. We talk about the rule of justice because the rule of law, uh, we draw certain comparison that the law in itself is the law for the dominance class and its interpretation, its implementation favors only a small minority of the ruling class. So that is the how that prominent phrase within uh, the movement come that we demand for the rule of justice, not just the rule of law. But as people are fighting for the uh, the review of the constitution, an incident also happened in 2002, and there was a parliamentary appeal to limit the presidential term limit that would necessarily you know, uproot Moi as the president in 2002. So that means in 2002, Moi tried to impose, you know, a president after he knew that he's going to lose an election. But unfortunately, his candidate, Jomo Kenyatta, lost with a landslide. In fact, uh, in Kenya, people call it the ballot revolution, as it is known in 2002. So, it basically means that communist, communist Party of Kenya could only exist legally in Kenya after the 2010. So that means as the outside struggle was moving on, there was also an internal struggle in the party. The struggle to actually take the entire Social Democratic Party, change its leadership, change its document, and put it into a trajectory of a revolutionary party. So this victory came earlier than the constitution. So when we are waiting for the constitution in 2010 to so that we start organizing overtly, the defeat came earlier. And after the 2007 elections, there was a massive killing of the innocent people in Kenya through the post-election violence. And people lost faith entirely within the establishment that had actually replaced Moi. And I think Kenya made several headlines, uh, in the international headlines, because yes. at that time, there were uh, very high-ranking Kenyan politicians that were actually indicted, and they were meant to be 
being tried at the Hague. Maybe without even losing sight, we must also say that the ICC court, the Communist Party of Kenya, even at that time, hold that that is an imperialist court. And um, we do not uh, support any trials that are only geared towards, uh, you know, preservation of the empire at it, as it is. But Kenyan made headlines at that time. And um, as they were busy fighting, we were able to take over the Social Democratic Party of Kenya. And you can remember in our, if you go through our literature, you realize that from 2009, all our documents, except our name, all our documents were Marxist Leninist Party. In fact, when we travel to go abroad to attend meetings, uh, it even brought confusions. Who are these social democrats that had clarity in terms of thought? I can remember an incident where we were invited together with the Labour Party in Kenya with a foundation, it's called Frederick Ebert's Foundation, uh, that worked here in Nairobi, and they thought we were social democrats. So we went to that meeting, and after listening to us, they told us to leave the boardroom because they realized that our ideas were quite strange to them and that this social democratic uh, name was just a camouflage. In fact, they said it was a deception of um, the German social democrat movement. So we existed as social democratic movement now as a revolutionary party from 2009 only operating under social democratic party as a name. So from that time, the study circles intensified. In 2010, after the promulgation of the new constitution, the process to change the name of the party from Social Democratic Party, to call ourselves the Communist Party of Kenya started. But the state, even though, and this is the limitation of the bourgeois legality, that even when the law allows you to exist legally, they will still interpret the law to try and, uh, you know, uh, to prevent you from existence. For example, I think the Registrar of Political Parties at that time was telling us that we are advancing a class conflict and this threatens the stability of the Kenyan state. Therefore, we are not registrable with the name the Communist Party in itself. And Kenya is a democracy and communism is not about democracy, just childishness talk. Anyway, that struggle we thought would take us a month or two to be recognized as a political party, but it took us nine years. So that is why the Communist Party first national congress that was held in their real name in a very emotional moment was in 2019. After again, we had to go to court and also have several demonstrations to be recognized as the Communist Party of Kenya. But at the very end of it, the Communist Party of Kenya was unveiled on the 5th of January, 2019. And particularly it was a big moment for us because remember these uh, imperialist uh, puppets here in Nairobi, they call themselves social democrats. Hmm. In fact, if you look at their manifestos, and even, even if you interrogate social democracy that um, had its roots in the social, democrat, social democratic movement of uh, German social democracy, 
these are reactionaries that had already sold out the working class. So we wanted to call ourselves who we are to also, uh, other than uh, defeating the confusion within the international circles, but also to distance ourselves from these reactionary politicians in Kenya that also call themselves social democrats. And sometimes when we go to speak to the masses, they will ask us, what is the difference? Is a social democratic party and also these other political parties call themselves social democratic party. Now, that was a new experience for us because for the first time you have communists, uh, you know, not looking after their back or running after the police or even there was some level of comfort in our organization. But definitely we also made that deliberate decision in the Congress that we will still make sure that we stay in touch and organize both overtly and covertly because we never know what the state is capable of doing. In fact, they tolerated us only if we did not have influence. But by the time we realized that we were getting you know, traction within the masses, even after their slander about communism, then they started to limit our, our operations. They started to pass laws that limit how we could raise resources. And they said that now we can only raise resources locally. And definitely they know that most of our supporters are poor people. So they wanted to have, you know, um, uh, a hedge in terms of the resource mobilization. They started to tell us we have to file our finances with the Register of Political Parties. And every time they're introducing a law only to make sure that we are limited in terms of operating overtly. And sometimes we have had incidences, even when they have uh, broken into our offices, basically to steal documents and to try and accuse us of running terrorist cells in that event. So uh, for us, we are aware that a confrontation with the state is inevitable uh, and we are preparing you know for it every day that for now they can give us a space but by the time they realize that we are uh, you know a big threat to their establishment then they will start uh, their uh, you know their plans to extinguish us to deregister us to give us all sorts of names so that is the history brief history of the communist party of Kenya since 2019 to now, comrade, we have not had, you know, a peaceful process because now we have also been dealing with internal contradictions within the party that has come up with the several lessons for us. In fact, now we are running a rectification program in the party and the biggest um, diseases that we have suffered in the communist party is opportunism and revisionism and um, this can be explained in history just like i told you that the communist movement in kenya did not start from the working class so the majority of our membership were mainly from the petty bourgeoisie stratus of the society and the leadership were mainly the intellectuals and uh, that can inform you why now we are deliberate that at least 60 percent of our membership and 60 percent of our leadership must be from the working class and that is from that historical lessons. Even now, even though I was talking to you about our previous leaders, there are two particular senior leaders that decided to go against the party line and are now serving within the Ruto administration at the moment. 
And uh, for us, you know, it was a, a, a step backward for it. But at least there's some time we have to take those lessons and move forward because it is not really in the, we're not like, it's not the first time it's happening. We can remember the Pepsi time, the Comitan time. So uh, revisionism and um, and what we have been trying to tell our international audience that, you know, the squabbles among the communists cannot be reduced only to differences, you know, like between family members or friends, but it must be viewed as an emergence of opportunism and revisionism and those forces that are opposed to such emergence. So that is the current situation of the party. We had a big electoral victory for us, which we did not expect in the last election. For the first time, in fact, one of the candidates that um, actually won to be the governor still is our party member today. So we have a big um, control of at least one county. We also had members of county assemblies, but we could have had even major electoral victories. Um, but some of our candidates, including myself, that were banned from you know contesting for election last year, could have served in this current bourgeois parliament. But also, it's good to be clear that we do not see bourgeois elections as an end in itself. We do, we do not see that we will liberate the Kenyan people through the system that has been offered by the enemy. In fact, we even clarified further that the only reason we were participating in those elections was, first of all, is to try the level of our organizations, to see how ready we were in terms of mobilization. But most primarily, we must never abandon the masses when the political temperatures are high and the pol politics is activated. We cannot only abandon them to the reactionary ideas of the ruling class. We must take up that opportunity to also offer a counterbalance of our revolutionary ideas. And indeed, we actually came up with several lessons. In fact, we did some album, which was very unpopular from the underground. There were mainly songs that we used to sing in the underground, but during this election time, the young people surprised us. And um, in fact, for the reason that I think even we have been known nationally and internationally was because of the young people that were supporting several candidates across the country through music. In fact, uh, I never did know that uh, hip hop music could penetrate the minds of the young people for a long time until we had this group of young communist artists that uh, were producing music every week and had to try and advance our propaganda. And now we can say that we are a national movement, we are a national party, and our level of organization is quite high in terms of um, even advancing the party school. We have the Marxist-Leninist Institute that continue to advance the ideological clarity and even response to international and um, national issues, as you probably must have realized. So that is in brief, but uh, for those comrades who want to know the history of the Communist Party of Kenya, we published an unedited version of a book. We call it The Building of the Communist Party of Kenya. 
It has all our correspondences and um, our historical documents that people can actually learn into to delve into the building of the Communist Party in Kenya. Great. We will definitely look for that book and, and learn more about your, your struggle for party building because, of course, while your situation is different to ours, again, we are in the same movement and there are many parallels. It's very interesting listening to you talk about the problems of opportunism and revisionism. Um, you know, these are manifestations of the class struggle everywhere all the time. And our movement is constantly, and every party is constantly beset by these struggles. So we all have had to, and regularly have to face these battles inside our parties. You know, and just as you think you're making progress, there erupts, you know, some controversy in a party and, and splits and confusion over, over, over line. And, and we see constantly the importance of holding on to um, a clear understanding of, of Marxist ideology and revolutionary Marxist ideology and how easy it is for people to slip down the path of what they see as pragmatism. And uh, I'm sure that many, many good Marxists become pragmatists because they stop studying, they think they know everything, and then they just think from now on, they just have to live and operate. And when you're no longer regularly studying Marxism, the bourgeois ideology is chipping into you every day, all the time. And before you know it, you have become pragmatic and creative with your Marxism, and you're just looking at, you know, the 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 the, the political setup and saying, oh, how can we just make a little move here and a little move there? And you've turned yourself into a bourgeois politician without even realizing how you did it, and you're frustrated with the revolutionaries who try to put you straight. You're like, no, 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 you don't understand how to be creative, you know, and in 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 across the world and across the across the last century and a half we've seen this this story constantly i i literally was in um on sunday morning i was in berlin uh giving a talk on the history of the communist movement and exactly my message was number one the class struggle is everywhere including inside your own organization and number two unless we are fighting opportunism constantly we will fail you know, and this is the, the the strongest lesson of the history of our movement. You know, every successful revolution has been based on um, a clear understanding of Marxism and a prioritizing of the fight against opportunism. So it's very interesting to hear you talk about that in terms of Kenya. Now, I'm aware we've been talking for quite a long time. There were other things I wanted to talk to you about, but I don't know how you feel about time. If you'd rather do those on another day, uh, you tell oh, no, me. No, let's carry on. You're okay to carry on? Yes, yes, please. Great, because I'm finding it very interesting. It must be a bit tiring for you. Um, so I wanted to move on to, if I may, and if there's a way to do it fairly briefly, uh, Pan-Africanism. Because, you know, in many ways, it seems obvious, right, that joint African development would make sense, that as a continent, Africa has huge resources, lots of manpower, everything you need to develop a modern, progressive, strong society, right? But in reality, in the history of the last hundred years, we've tended to see Pan-Africanism Pan -Africanism being used as an oppositional ideology to socialism, right? Very often it's presented as a diversion from class struggle to encourage Africans to believe that their problems are more to do with skin color than they are to do with the system of uh, imperialist monopoly 
capitalism, you know, the oppression that comes from the exploitation of big capital. I just wanted to know in, in, in your party's view, in your view, living in Africa, is there a socialist version of pan-African uh, outlook that, that you guys look at? Or, or how do you feel about the philosophy of pan-Africanism? So, first of all, there is an important element of the theory of knowledge of Marxism, which is based in its historical context. Because remember, sometimes we refer to Marxism as the science of history. So the African race shares a certain history. That is what we must think through. What is this history that is different from other races? That is history of colonialism, history of slavery, and all that kind of thing. We also suffer a history of miseducation. And Pan-Africanism has evolved from several intellectual, African intellectuals. Remember, when we are talking about Pan-Africanism, at certain point in the history of development of Pan-Africanism, there was this issue of negritudes. And the negritude was about Senghor. He was an African philosopher. And he was telling us to go back to our roots. In short, to unwind the wheels of history. What are silly thoughts? <laughs> you know, when we know that from studying Marxism, we must appreciate the development of the productive forces, that we cannot go and say that now we want to live in villages. It is a losing fight. And also, remember that when we were conceptualizing Pan-Africanism, the African philosopher King suffered the racist attack from particularly the European intellectuals. So there was a fear that if you come to Africa, Africa is fighting for independence, and you try to talk about Marxism, Marxism will be looked at from the point of a colonizer. That was a big challenge that the African progressives or African, the leaders of the African liberation movement battled with. It's, it's like, you know, people like Tom Boya or Jomo Kenyatta from Kenya. Uh, now we even hear that the British government gave him a white wife because that will make him more, you know, amenable to the conditions. So, and Tom Boya, the same case. So what I'm trying to put across that we do not deny that there are contradictions among races, among tribes, we do not deny that there is certain gender, even contradictions. But the most important is that in the law of contradictions, which one is primary? Because we have to, in the, when we are advancing our struggle, then we have to say which contradictions we must resolve that are primary, and which ones are secondary, which ones are tertiary. And they keep changing. So any Marxist will agree with us that the class contradiction is the final. So we must then look at Pan-Africanism within that context. The second part of it is these other philosophies that, especially the African philosopher, king, philosopher kings, thought that they wanted to come up with an indigenous 
an African, we must give a counterbalance to them that now that Marxism is a science, it must be studied like any other science. So we don't say it's a Dutch science or it is a European science. Once it is a science, it is universal. So this, we must also understand that people like Kwame Nkrumah and Mwalimu Julius Nyerere that grappled with this question while living in very difficult circumstances, especially within the intellectual space. Remember Nyerere talked about African socialism. And now we can see the mistakes that he made. The only person that resolved himself was Kwame Nkrumah because he also came up with this idea of conscientism. But later on, he published the class struggle of Africa and absolved himself. And many other theorists within the African liberation movement clarified the position of Pan-Africanism. One of them is Amilka Cabra. The other one is Walter Rodney. And when we say that Communist Party of Kenya is a Pan-Africanist party, what we basically mean is that Pan-Africanism is the objective. But the software that runs this Pan-Africanism is scientific socialism. So there are other offshoots of Pan-Africanism, for example, the whole talk of African rising that is being advanced by neoliberal forces in Africa to try and open markets for Africa indeed and, uh, you know, and make it uh, trade in very unequal environment with the global north. Those rhetorics are only going to actually anchor the interest of imperialism in Africa. And we do not desire any unity as African people based on exploitation of other races. We do not desire the unity of the United States based on enslaving other people. We don't desire any unity of the Europe because we can see even the, 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 the European unity is tumbling. Why? Because it is one that is not built on the clarity of ideas, but was built on subjugation of other races. So to help you clarify the position of the Communist Party of Kenya is that CPK is a party that believes on scientific socialism. And we believe that even now, we are not dealing with a race equation. We are dealing with a class equation. We have the black race here dominating us. The people who are slaughtering us, who are killing us, the people who are stealing from us, these are not white people anymore. These are black privileged people. If you go to the United States of America where the race question dominates, and sometimes when we are having discussions with them in regard to the race question, some of them still think that race is primary. But for us, we hold a very strong position that the white working class and the black working class might be facing differences but their struggle remains the same. In fact, the institutionalizing of racism within the United States of America is actually a mirage to try and, you know, portray the African race or the black population or the brown population that indeed they are more underprivileged than the white working class population. 
So if we play that card of the oppressor, then it actually means that we are going to divide the sections of the working class. And remember our strength is the unity of the global proletariat movement. The working class have no nations. If we have no nations, then how will we domesticate our fight within one race? Where do we expect to take other races? And it brings also the question of gender. If we domesticate, in fact, we always say that half, you know, Mao used to remind us that the women hold half the sky. So that means the clarity in terms of organizing in the party, even though we talk about class and gender approach in the party, but we know that class is the main, is actually the main contradictions that we have to deal with that cannot be resolved through peaceful means, but through a revolution. That is our articulation of Pan-Africanism. Beautiful, thank you. Uh, that's very, very good hearing, I have to say. Uh, and I like what you said about um, science. You know, I've, I've said the same thing in speeches myself. You know, we talk about it also, this, the, the ridiculousness of classing scientific understanding according to a culture or a race when it has transcended any such thing what it's you know the people who who founded or discovered some scientific laws might come from a particular culture but the laws they discover apply everywhere <laughs> you know it's like saying oh we africans we need our own maths we have to throw away isaac newton and start again because that's european maths you know now is there any mathematician anywhere in the world who would say that really seriously and not you know to, to as a joke or you know to because he was some kind of woke lunatic you know no of course they wouldn't you can't you can't advance science on that basis you know and this is something of course the ruling class doesn't want the working class to know that marxism is a science that marx discovered laws about how history operates. Marx discovered laws about how economics operates. Marx, you know, you said yourself that um, those particular uh, branches of academia where Marxism is relevant are the ones which are most captured by the, by the bourgeoisie. There's a really good reason for that. They, since they, we're not allowed to know that Marxism is a science, bourgeois academia has created you know with political economy with philosophy uh with history they've created ever since capital was published uh bourgeois science or bourgeois academia has been involved in creating a machinery of confusion of obfuscation of the truths that will come to us through this science we're not allowed to know that this science has happened so there's no more political economy in the real sense there's no more history in a real sense there's no more social science in a real sense there's a big machinery to hide the fact that a great advance was made which is not in the interest of the ruling class to be propagated you know and this is this is something that again you know as communists we have to be much clearer in explaining to people that we're about marxism is scientific socialism it's not the ideas of some bloke from a long time ago it's a science and it's really it's really nice to hear uh, you talking about that book and very good i think for our comrades here who you know they hear us but we're nobody <laughs> We're such a small organization. We live in a society where we're so fringe, you know, and it's hard 
for many people in Britain to understand, and even people who join our movement and our party to understand, that we are with the majority in the world, that socialism speaks for humanity, and that around the world, there are many, many people and big organizations that think the same way we do and look at the world the same way we do, because we are presented in Britain, if we are presented at all, which mainly we're not, but if we are presented, it's as if we're just some very strange, kind of almost like a religious fringe, weird sect, you know, and the idea that actually we're acting in the interests of the majority and that history is with us is something that's very hard for people to really grasp. Anyway, I'll stop talking <laughs> uh, because, um, you know, I wanted to come back to this question of, I know uh, my uh, comrades will want to hear your thoughts about what's been happening in Africa recently, because of course, you know, the removal of the Western Stooge Bazoum in Niger uh, sent shockwaves around the world, a lot of headlines about it. And it was very interesting to me to see just how many headlines there were about what happened in Niger when there had been almost no headlines about what happened in Mali and Burkina Faso, which was basically, you know, very similar. Um, and you know, when they uh, established this National Council for the Safeguarding of the Homeland, um, it really, really shocked uh, imperialist politicians and, 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 and bourgeois media around the world. There was a big, this big drive, you know, that something must be done, something must be done, all coups are terrible, aren't they? Um, but very little we get by way of context uh, for these events in Western media. Um, you know, <laughs> Very few people saw this very important fact, which came out to us. And, you know, I put it on my Telegram channel, but there's just a few people who look at that. You know, um, we try to bring these things to the attention of, of whoever we can get to. But the fact that Niger was tied in to selling its uranium to France for 80 cents a kilo when the market price is $200. That to me is like, it's a microcosm of what imperialism is right there, just in that one relationship, you know, and it really speaks volumes about the continuing neo-colonial relationships that dominate and characterize so much of, of what's happening in Africa and the economic and social life of, of your continent. And I wondered how did the workers in Kenya and in your party respond to the removal of Bazoum? And how did Kenya's ruling elites respond? And do you think that the rulers in your country are nervous about the spread of this revolutionary contagion? Thank you. First of all, it's, it's interesting that the most presidents in Africa that are mainly the puppets of the West went on a live television. And um, President Ruto here at home was saying that the era of coups are gone and that um, um, Africa has only one path, the path to democracy. In fact, we told him not democracy, the path to liberal democracy in his own thinking. And of course, we had a quick rejoinder for him that um, the only way even himself he can avoid a coup is to give the dignity of the majority of the people. And uh, he will not save his skin if he continue to run the economy only for the privileged few. So the power to stop coups in Kenya is in his own hands. 
And that if we continue to then dominate the, actually subjugate the majority of the people through exploitation, you know, um, uh, uh, over taxation. And we know that his class position do not allow him to make certain progressive policies. So in actual sense, he's only a scared dog of the West. In fact, now we call him the, the, George, the Joe Biden's dog. When Joe Biden speaks, he, he only asks how high he can jump. But let me bring you to our analysis about the discourse. First of all, the Western Africa has been very unfortunate because the French has been, they bear the, the worst conditions in terms of um, neocolonial arrangements. And uh, even if you look at Congo, look at the music. Now they sing Congolese music and they say fresh from Paris. That's how bad it is. Uh, look at the, 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 the French franc, the, the, their currency. Um, somehow there was some negotiations with the United States that um, allowed uh, the Francophone countries, the so-called Francophone countries to actually be tied to the, uh, to the countries of the metropole, particularly the, the France um, economy. And it basically clearly that the ruling class in France are aware that most of the wealth that um, they get to run the economy comes from Africa. So we could understand why the bourgeois governments are unsettled across the globe. But for us, we think uh, the Communist Party of Kenya is here. The communist movement uh, is um, here with us. And they have even more reason to be terrified, to, to tremble. Because coups are just not coups. You know, some people want to make the, the African population, the global uh, South population, to actually think that there is absoluteness in terms of coups. For example, why is the United States and French government not condemning the coup that took place in Libya that ended up with the death of Omar Gaddafi? Why are they not condemning the coup in Chad? So, but they are very quick to dismiss, for example, the coups in Niger, in Mali, in Burkina Faso. For the very particular reason that there are coups that are, that are supported from external imperialist interest. Those coups are interesting to be covered in CNN. Those coups are interesting to be covered. In fact, in the bourgeois corporate media, they call it the removal of dictators so and so. But when there is a popular uprising and the coups are supported from the popular base, then you see their cameras are turning away. In fact, they are calling for a regional intervention. Even during the Niger, they called in the ECOWAS, which is under the captive of the United States and their imperialist allies to organize some military intervention. Why not for the presence and the support that the Niger government, the transitional government received from the Niger people, it will have been trouble because normally the United States is stronger if they have their 
sections of the political class that supports their ideas and are also enjoy some popular support at home. In that case, Niger, they did not have. Their puppets were totally corrupt. They were criminals that had um, actually killed several innocent people and nobody wanted them. On the other end, the military transitional government enjoyed the popular support from the poor people and the working class. And they talked the language that has continued to disturb the Niger people. For example, the over the super exploitations of the national resources of the Nigerian people by the former you know, colonizer, particularly the French, was something that worried. The presence of the French military bases that continue to harass people on the daily basis. The Niger people were tired of living in such conditions. And the revolutionary government, after taking power, even advanced certain policies that were pro the working class, the pro poor people. In fact, the imperialist governments are very uncomfortable when a government is serving the people because they will always want you to be having troubles at home. In fact, a few years back, they, they even coined this, that they will get the minority of the tribal population to lead so that that minority that enjoys the minority tribe always look west to seek its support. And they did that experiment here in Rwanda where they killed the sitting president and of course moved in to install a tribal minority. They have continued to speak certain things like that in Kenya because for them, Africa votes in tribal blocks and they think that is the reality that is permanently with us. So our reaction is that the Communist Party of Kenya supports the Niger coup, they support the Mali coup, whatever they want to call it, we support the Burkina Faso for the very reason that these are governments that enjoy the popular support of the working class and also help us to actually see the limits of liberal democracy. That indeed, even Kenya today, this new uprising in, in the West African countries brings new hope to the oppressed people in Nairobi, particularly uh, comrade, you realize that 70% of the Nairobi residents still lives in informal settlements. They are still disturbed of what their next meal is going to actually come from. So this new uprising is bringing not false hope, but real hope. Because remember also there were a few uprisings in Africa, what we call the, uh, the what they're calling the the colored revolutions that were mainly sponsored by the Western government and the Arab Springs that brought in false uh, hope for the working class people. And even turned back, uh, like for example, the saddest case is Egypt, where after the fall of the reactionary government, they, they got to be replaced by the most organized caliphate there, which was, um, the Muslim Brotherhood, and now they are back again to the same problem that they faced because the United States will not allow any progressive governments to be in the North or in the West or in the South or even in the East of Africa. 
for them we need the puppets that we can pull and to implement our policies to actually defund the, the south and fund the northern hemisphere so that is our attitude towards the so-called coups but for us we see that is a new way of reorganization in africa and we hope that it will be good lessons for us particularly in in kenya we are saying that even though if this reactionary government falls the most organized will take the political power so that means our challenge is to be the most organized for example now in nairobi if the william ruto's kleptocracy falls then we will go back to fascism which are this opposition led uh, you know demonstrations in nairobi that particularly only takes advantage of the failure of capitalism and capitalism only hibernates a little bit and transitions to fascism especially when they are facing crisis so our duty as revolutionaries to continue expanding our organization and building the party among the kenyan working class and the poor people beautiful thank you i'm going to flip us around the world a little bit if that's okay to me it's all connected i'm sure to you it's all connected too uh, because in our party's view uh, the escalation of the war in ukraine last year has actually become the defining geopolitical event of our era and i know that initially uh, when the war broke out there were many people um, living in oppressed countries far from europe who felt like what's this got to do with us you know this is a war in europe russia and ukraine are, are are in are in europe you know this has no connection to our struggle but in fact uh, my party sees this war as both a symptom of the deep crisis of the global capitalist economy um, it shows our rulers desperate attempt to escape their crisis through conquest through looting of new territories uh, and also it's a factor that's exacerbating their crisis it's making it worse because the unintended economic consequences of their sanctions war against Russia are fueling inflation. There was already really bad inflation because of years of money printing. They're fueling it. And there was already disruption of important supplies because of COVID and all the dis dislocations there. They're fueling all of these problems, making them worse. And at the same time, you know, we have to see that with Russia and China, particularly in the crosshairs of this war there's we have to understand the reasons why are russia and china targeted uh, and what's very disappointing to us as marxists is to see uh, that with the outbreak of this war and with the ramping up of imperialist propaganda that says russia is imperialist and china is imperialist these are the remember the imperialists want to target russia and china they're driving to war against russia and china because they want to break them apart and loot them and as part of that drive they're bombarding us with uh, lies about Russia and about China. And the really uh, tragic thing is to see that the communist movement, for many reasons we can't go into, big parts of it have accepted this tenet of bourgeois propaganda that says Russia is imperialist, China is imperialist, and they are repeating it. And some of them are doing it in a way where they try to put a Leninist kind of wrapping on what they're saying. And I think that uh, our party believes that this, uh, if this is not stopped, the, 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 the consequences for our movement will be catastrophic, not just in each country, but, but, but globally, because it, communists should be 
if they are properly trained and understand Marxism, the most dedicated anti-imperialists. They're the ones who should be leading and giving the steel at the center of the anti-imperialist movement. The head that thinks because it has scientific training and the steel that gives the, the, the solidity uh, to an anti-imperialist movement. And what we're seeing is that when, when communists repeat these lies about Russia and China, what happens is uh, that the communist parties and the communist cadres are sitting on the side of this conflict, which is shaping up to be the defining conflict of our time, the conflict with Russia and China on one side and the, and the imperialists on the other side. You know, so we are often told in our media, it's full of stories about how Russia and China are acting in Africa as imperialists, as invaders, as looters. But what was noticeable to us, what, in many countries where they're suffering from jihadi terrorism, for example, which the West has inserted into Africa, or um, where, they're, where they're having coups against uh, old governments, they're waving Russian flags um, on mass demonstrations, many Russian flags we see. So I just wondered about the experience of, of the people and your party in, in Kenya. How does your party view Russia and China today? First of all, thank you for this question, Comrade Jyoti. You know, when we discuss this topic, especially with our comrades from the global north, we seem to be in very different uh, realities. And um, sometimes we even uh, fail to value that in the Marxist tradition, everything is debatable. Because we remember that certain organizations or political parties will dismiss certain positions without debating them, especially when it comes to China, Russia, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And um, for them, it's, uh, we find it a bit more dogmatic in a sense that um, you do not allow comrades uh, to debate those issues and even to offer you know a more superior uh, you know rebuttal in terms of understanding how we historically understand those things but maybe if i could start from a philosophical point of view is that you and me who are involved in this struggle we just don't want to fight and die at least we want to see some change, some really change in our lifetime. And um, we think that uh, certain geopolitical uh, events determined the movement of revolutionary, uh, you know, uh, the uptake of revolutionary ideas and the movement of the struggle from one state to the other. In fact, Lenin says there's sometimes there's sometimes that uh, you know hours are days and sometimes years are seconds so when we study the events in terms of geopolitical um in the geopolitical the global geopolitical space first of all i think from a revolutionary perspective we can choose to be puritans in terms of um, uh, discussing certain terminologies especially on issues to do with imperialism and uh, also we can try to be practical and uh, be accused uh, of revisionism. But 
the whole essence is to advance the class struggle and also to make sure that we move the struggle from one element to the other. But the biggest understanding is the still I refer you to the law of contradiction. Because in the party, we think, and this can be proven in history, that we think that the United States and NATO is the primary contradiction in whose ruins a new society will blossom. That is what we think in the part. And anytime we advance our, our, our global political environment, we hold it from that foundation. That in the absence of the world police, because the United States dominance class believes that this world is their bucket. They, we are just some kids, they can walk over and discipline us and tell us like the world police. That is a very difficult circumstances to organize. Now, there are certain realities that are facing the United States that particularly the ruling class is either out of touch or sometimes they say they're just outright silly because there are certain policies that have continuously been implemented by the ruling class in the global north. And these policies have failed. So they still have hangovers of being the world prefect. In reality, they are not, but they still do not know that they are a degenerating empire. They need to start to have a plan on how to exit. And for me, if I was them, I could think of exiting with dignity, you know, but they have chosen to be consumed by their own fire. That is what the United States is doing. Because anybody who wants to tell us that any state, even if we leave Russia alone, any state in the world will have an enemy, an outright enemy, installing their military hardware and artillery right at your doorstep to threaten the integrity of your state, whatever that state is. And that is acceptable. Even within the United States policy writers, they do not accept that. Remember the nuclear crisis, the Cuban nuclear crisis. What happened? The Cuban uh, nu uh, nu uh, missile nuclear crisis, they will not allow it, even one inch within the Cuban land. So what makes the policy drivers in the United States think that after, first of all, they participated actively to dismantle the USSR, and the United States do not have any foreign policy. They only have interests. So the United States interest is the policy itself. So they can promise you A, but in actual sense, they're going to do B. So through the policy of deception, they dismantle the USSR. We can see, look at Yugoslavia, look at the Baltic states, and now look at the experiment that they're doing right at the doorstep in Ukraine. Because for them is to encircle any person or any nation that challenges their hegemony with war artillery. That is unacceptable. Whatever content anybody wants to call Russia, even if they were the leaders of the Russian government, 
I know we have a duty to deal with our national bourgeoisie, but we also have a duty to protect the integrity of the external imperialist intervention in our countries. That is why we keep on saying that the military, the United States and the, and the European military bases in our respective countries are a threat to our direct sovereignty. We are not saying that the Batuk, the British army here, is not a threat to our country because we are not socialist. Even though, of course, we know that the bourgeois courts here exist, but will we sit aloof and say that we will not go to those courts because those courts favor the rich people? We know that ICC is the imperialist court, but will we say that the people who commit crime should not go there because the United States criminals are not going there? We don't think that logic makes sense to us because we are living in a real world. So in our analysis of the what they want to call the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, which we see as an extension of United States military base within Ukraine, in fact, we see it as a NATO proxy war that the American having adopted the policy of not putting their white soldiers on the ground, they want people to die on their behalf. So they are actually hanging the Ukrainian people by the neck and they want people to actually support that. They want revolutionaries and the communist parties in the global continent to support them in terms of, you know, um, uh colonizing or um, uh, you know state managing what they are calling that the ukrainians are defending their rights to statehood that is impossible for us because comrade and and there's a new logic again that we really feel like it's the worst logic that any person can use to justify anything because sometimes when we are debating they will ask us who started the war? You know, who threw the first blow? You cannot do an analysis in that sense. Because now look at what is happening in Gaza. The same logic is prevailing. But who started the war? Because they either do not want to look at the historical context of what is happening between the Ukraine and Russia, but they will want to just sit down and dismiss it as, you know, using the cliche in the first and the second and the third international that the communists should not support imperialist wars. But remember, even during the, the government of the Saddam in the Russia, the war that was happening with the Russia, the, the, the Saar government, was helping the Russian revolutionaries to defeat their local bourgeoisie at home. So you cannot tell us that, indeed, we have to then remain neutral in certain sense. And also now they are talking about, how can you talk about the defeat of NATO, particularly in regard to the, for example, in regard to the Ukrainian conflict with Russia, without talking about the victory of Russia. For us, we think it is a, a bit of hypocritical not to allow debates, because at the end of the day, 
when Russia wins, the empire is weakened. And then a new era is welcomed, an era of multi multipolarity. And that for us, we see it as a fertile ground to advance the struggle of the working class. Now, when we talk about USSR and Russia, the current Russia, we talked about the floods in Niger. First of all, those floods bring very different memories, not like the American flag, because the British and the American flag is the most, you know, scariest flag in the African continent because about because of the atrocities that they are actually they committed. Even these people that are telling us that they are supporting the African continent, what have they done in the last several decades in Africa? What has the United States done? In fact, the United States was humiliated by the African nationalists and the Cuban forces in Quito Carnavala that led to the defeat of the border regime, the apartheid in South Africa. What can they tell us when every person who fought for the true liberation of Africa was murdered by the CIA or was called a terrorist? Even the most famous person that even compromised with them, Nelson Mandela, even was called a terrorist at that time. So what moral authority does the West have to lecture us on how to relate with other countries, especially the dominance class in the West? We see that it is a lot of hypocrisy to tell us that any, any person who wants to support, you know, an alternative way to relate with the geopolitical environment, that that person threatens the very independence of our countries. I think we have very fond memories of USSR. We have very fond memories with China. In fact, we always tell them, of course we can criticize Russia. Of course we can criticize China, but not in the cynical and in the racist way you want us to do it. In fact, you are only jealous because they are actually replacing your hegemony in the continent. In fact, the arrival of both the Russian and the Chinese capital in, 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 in Africa was welcomed by both the reactionary and the revolutionaries. Why? They need to interrogate it because they brought certain freedom on how to negotiate with the United States capital. And that is what the United States capital do not like. When China is talking about, for example, infrastructure development in Kenya, they are talking about certain campaigns, about soft campaigns, about, dem uh, about liberal democracy. They are talking about, you know, uh, uh, changing some physical policy in our World Bank. And in fact, if, they, if it comes to industries, they have only entrenched what we call modern day slavery in Kenya today. Remember, the United States came up with their GOA program. What does a GOA program do? They create special economic zones where they get subsidized water, they get subsidized electricity, they suspend all labor laws, 
and they manufacture things in our country on the pretext that they are providing jobs where they just enjoy almost cheap labor. In fact, it is modern day slavery. All these textile being produced in special economic zones are exported to the West and returned back to be resold to Africa as second-hand clothes. What is that in terms of humiliation that we have? What is it in terms of humiliation that we have not experienced with this uh, leadership in the Western hemisphere? I think we need to have a solid debate that for the Communist Party of Kenya, and indeed in the absence of the vanguard of the international, uh, the international vanguard of the working class, and even in the continental vanguard of the of the of the working class, we must advance and um, you know support an alternative arrangement that gives us a breather to organize as communists. In the last 40 years that the United States have been dominating this continent, they even, uh, you know, illegalized our, uh, you know, studying of um, Marxism. So what is it that they can assure us that they can give us freedom? Freedom to be their slaves, to, to be on our knees. So in terms of commenting about Russia and China, I think we see a lot of possibilities, particularly with our Chinese comrades. And we also see that the effects in terms of their involvement in the development projects within Africa. In fact, sometimes we refer them to study the most successful story in Africa of the Chinese capital that we always think is Angola because of the elimination of extreme poverty. Um, and they can do certain uh, project analysis. When we were being dominated by Amer American British multinationals like Strabag, their only corruption reigns. They did feasibility studies for 10 years. Now we are doing it in less than eight months. And, and the United States bureaucracy only put us into debt. In fact, they were giving us loans to pay their own, um, uh, what they were calling consulting engineers, at very exorbitant prices. And then later on, they will abandon the entire project that is not feasible after we have paid for the feasibility studies to leave us with loans. Such is the arrogance of the empire. So we are tired of their lectures. And for us, we think that we see a better world that is the world of you know, a multipolar world. We are supporting the BRICS initiative. It doesn't mean that all the members of the BRICS initiatives are socialist countries, but we see a possibility in terms of advancing the struggle of the global working class. That is uh, the position of our party. And in our view, we've written certain statements in regard to the Ukrainian, um, what we consider to be the NATO proxy war in Ukraine. We have um, written statements in regard to China-African relations and certain possibilities. And your listeners can see it on our website, uh, the Communist Party of Kenya.org. And we are willing to receive certain specific questions because, comrade, in our party, everything under the sun is a subject of debate. And um, as long as we use the good tools for debate and we are not in any way falling into revisionism or any dogmatic element, there is no reason why communist organizations or parties 
should have antagonistic relationship. In fact, our relationship must not be antagonistic. We should be able to resolve our problems through debates and persuasion through bold debate about the environments we are organizing. Absolutely. And of course, what underpins the ability to have those type of respectful relations is honesty of intention. You know, you start to get schisms when one side is no longer honestly looking for the truth. They're following an agenda for a different reason. You know, as a, a true Marxist puts the ego on one side, puts the organization even on one side and says it's the truth that is going to set us free. It's the Marxist science is all about understanding reality and acting in accordance with that. We are here to liberate humanity, not to build our own egos. And everything about having respectful debate relies on the participants having honest intentions and you know open minds. So uh, it's really important that that point that you make. But um, you just reminded me when we were talking about a uh, experience I had many years ago at the time of the uh, Zimbabwean, uh, what they called it, or well, the fourth Chimarenga, they called it when they when they did the land program. And um, at that time in our media, there was lots of hysteria, you can imagine in Britain, against uh, the government of Robert Mugabe, against the land program, against the land reform. There was huge sanctions, lots and lots of pressures. We had a very interesting solidarity meeting on this question in London. And the Zimbabwean ambassador came to our meeting and he was not your usual diplomat. He was a political person and he understood very well. He had much experience um, you know, of the struggle uh, and, of, and of politics of all kinds. And he was very frank with us. And he talked to us about the IMF. And he said, you know, the IMF came, and for me, I was, I was, I was a lot younger then. I didn't, I hadn't learned and heard so many stories. And it was a revelation to me how he described it, what you, exactly as you just did. He said, the IMF came, they gave us a big loan and we were in debt. And the idea of the loan was electrification of the country. And he said, after we'd spent all the money, all we had were reports and a debt that we had to service and no electricity. And he said to us, after we kicked the IMF out, he said, we realized that electrification is not that complicated. <laughs> you need poles, you need wires, right? We can do it ourselves. But this thing that the imperialists do of, of using their technological monopoly, it's a real, it's the cornerstone of the imperialist system. How could Africa be conquered in the first place? How was Latin America conquered? Because when the Europeans turned up, their weapons were so superior, their firepower was so overwhelming, their technological dominance meant that they could act like gods. You know, they didn't even call it a war when they conquer your, these two continents full of people and civilizations and everything that's there because the kind of guns they have mean they can just, you know, a few people can wipe out hundreds of thousands. And um, this technological dominance, I think is the, the, the key to why they hate Russia and hate China because they have the ability to, to cut the ground completely out from underneath the technological dominance of the of the imperialists um, by share by developing a parity and by sharing it with you know the one thing that China does I think that's so wonderful is that they they not only actually as you say build infrastructure that they promise rather than just taking money for it and giving you a, a piece of paper back but so not only do they build infrastructure but they share technologies 
with other countries, you know, and enable real development to happen. And of course, that takes away the, that gives people choice. That takes away the ability of the imperialists to just dominate and keep you in the position they want you in and say, no, what you will do in the global uh, supply chain is this, and you'll do it this way and anything different and will make things even, even harder for you than they already are. Um, so thank you for that. That was really uh, in, uh, enlightening. Um, but it just, it just reminded me of that, that experience I had with a Zimbabwean minister there. Uh, you've been really patient with us. I've got one more thing I wanted to talk to you about. And it's just because it's happening right now. And because there are so many parallels, I think, between the, the struggle of the Palestinian people and your own people's struggle. So with the outbreak uh, of what we've seen this weekend, all out war in Palestine this weekend, how does your party feel about the Palestinian question? You know, you're a country that suffered from an apartheid settler colonial regime. Uh, how do you feel when you see this equivalence made between Israelis and Palestinians in all of the bourgeois media? You know, you're a country that fought a long and difficult liberation struggle with weapons. You know, do Kenyan people in general join in in agreement when the Western media preaches about uh, about arms when they when they claim that um, to harm a civilian is the worst thing that can ever happen, although the civilian is an is an occupier who has a choice and the person fighting back uh, does not. Uh, what does your party feel about these questions? Yeah, first of all, comrade, the Communist Party of Kenya is uh, a party of internationalism, and um, that means internationalism and solidarity from the, the foundation of the Communist Party of Kenya. So we see that we must be in solidarity with all of all the oppressed people in the world. And that is why we say that the Communist Party of Kenya headquarters is the solidarity center. So we host, for example, the Western Sahara Solidarity Committee against the Morocco occupation. We host the Kenya-Palestine Solidarity Committee here in Nairobi. And actually, since we are founding members of the Solidarity Committee for our Palestinian brothers and sisters, we have the Kenya-Cuba Friendship Solidarity Committee. We have the DPRK Solidarity Committee within the party. And um, uh, what I will tell you is that in our internationalist work, we are very clear about it. So that informs that the Communist Party of Kenya remains in solidarity, permanent and unconditional solidarity. In fact, if we had any material support, then we will have no excuse not to send it to our Palestinian people our friends, our comrades, our brothers in Palestine that are finding very unequal. In fact, that war is not even worth calling it a war. It is actually a genocide. You know, it's a Holocaust, if you may want to call it that way. We don't see any, the forces, the occupied forces and the occupiers forces, it is, very difficult to even think that any sane person will think that 
you know, Israel has any right to continue almost for 75 years to cause untold suffering, deaths against innocent Palestinian people. And even after they compromised, the PLO compromised and even accepted this two-state solution, Israel continued with their expansionist policy and for drumming the war, you know, to calling on that they're the most powerful army on earth. For that arrogance, indeed, we have to see how Israel has been able to contain the narrative within the African continent for a long time. In fact, in our own analysis, they lost the narrative in 2010 completely. And what has been this narrative? The British enjoyed the ethnic narrative because the imperialists always look for a way to divide a people because that is the only way to thrive. So the Israel government used the religious narrative to divide the African population. And sometimes we also think that the people that are in solidarity with Palestine also falls for that narrative, especially when they continue to say that it's a war between Islam and Christian. So every time the media would always bring it out, all the analysis, even certain professors that I used to respect, every time they come to do analysis on, on, on broadcast TV, they will say that this is a war between Christians and Muslims, and they will try to quote certain uh, dogmatic verses to try and justify that white settler colonialism. Even um, unpacking Zionism as a political movement was a painful exercise for some of the bourgeois intellectuals. So indeed, the events of the last few days have actually brought out that the words of Julius Nyerere when he had a conversation with this criminal called Henry Kissinger during the fight for the liberation in Africa, those words has come true. And at that time, Henry Kissinger had visited Africa and uh, he had a conversation with uh, Nyerere and his idea was that no ragtag army in Africa will be able to defeat apartheid regime. So it's better we surrender or be extinct. That was Henry Kissinger's words. But he spoke for a long time. I think it was being broadcasted. But Nyerere replied him very politely that as so long as there is a collective will of the people to fight for their right to self-determination, freedom, and their right to dignity, not any lethal air power will be able to de deter those people from fighting for their undeniable right to statehood. And in conclusion, Nyerere told him on a live TV that the ANC 
and its arm resistance in South Africa shall win. And it was not too long since the back of apartheid was broken by the African nationalist movement supported by the Cuban combatants, the internationalists, in what even they did not believe. In fact, the United States had thought that it was the USSR they were fighting in Angola at that time. So this is something that they lost that religious narrative. And now even the day of Al-Quds is known in Kenya today as the day of resistance. And it is not taking place in the mosques, it's taking place in public squares. So the Israeli propagandists and uh, bloggers want to return us to that narrative. And they lost it for the last 10 years. And that is why there has been a popular support, mainly from the progressives and the African people, to now to try and question. And since it is more real in the African continent, because remember the Kenyan people still bears the scars of uh, British savagery, the British colonialism. So they can relate how the Mau Mau combatants were massacred you know the women were bombed just because they were taking water to the fighters in the forests such tactics are the ones that are going are being used today in gaza but this you know the total force of the oppressed people has always been one the guerrilla warfare we have seen how the tactic of guerrilla warfare can be used to humiliate an enemy that you think was so powerful. Remember, there is massive mobilization that Joe Biden has been talking about of taking the destroyers and all the lethal hardware. But we ask ourselves to bomb who? Because the guerrilla is a surprise attack. And in actual sense, what they are, the experiment they are trying already had failed in Africa. Mossad itself has been exposed because Mossad has created a name after its own shadow, saying that it is the most efficient intelligent system. They were found naked for the first time. So it is a true con confirmation that the Palestinian people, victory is coming soon to them, and the opposite Israel state, their army is not invincible anymore. They are even spending more money to counter in terms of the mortars from the Gaza Strip. While what the residents of Gaza has been asking for for the last 16 years is not even right to statehood. Some people try to confuse that. Gaza is under siege. They just want right to medicine, right to water, you know, to build their own infrastructure, to have an airport. This is what Gaza has been demanding. But they have been faced with humiliation, horrors, and deaths. And they do not realize that the more repression they continue to put against the Gaza people, the more resistance it will boil. In fact, now death has become a common occurrence. It is only the Israelis 
that do not know death as a common occurrence. That is why now, even though this, uh, you know, Netanyahu is telling them that Israel is safe, that please stay home, but they are packing their bags because for them is a new reality. They have never seen such in the history of this conflict in a long time. So even the Israeli common citizens do not feel any safe anymore. That is why they are packing their bags to leave. Uh, this uh, media attack, you know, it's something that I don't think even the, the Palestinian people are worried about it because now they have taken their own destiny in their own hands. You cannot tell me that you come and then kill my mama, kill my dad, kill my family members, and you think I will not join a resistant movement to fight against you. When I stay on the other side of the wall, even though you call me an animal, but I'm still a rational being because you have reduced my life to, you know, to a life of um, an animal, basically. Because if I, I, I still am worried about food, I'm worried about my security, I have no future. And on the other side of the wall, there is a Torah party. People are partying, people are dancing. It is even more disturbing that I have to live in such humiliation, not just for my entire life, but my children who are not even guaranteed to survive because they will be murdered. Then I have no other reason to live other than to continue to resisting the occupation. So the Palestinian people, I know they are wounded now, but they are still limping to victory. They might be thinking that the, they do not have much support from the world, but I think in the last several days, they have received several solidarity. We have seen the desperation of the, you know, the right-wing government in Israel who want to escalate this to a full-blown war by trying to, you know, call on the mobilization of, you know, uh, to protect what they're calling the only democracy in the west side of Asia, which is Israel. But again, we see that um, the leaders or the ruling class in Israel, they do not know how vulnerable the United States is. In fact, how many wars are United States going to start? They have already lost in Afghanistan. They lost even, they cannot bring peace in Libya. They have lost in Iraq. The same way they, they lost in Vietnam. Even the smallest uh, rebellion against the, you know, the, the war in Indonesia, they, they can only be a difference between a just war and unjust war. The Palestinian war is a just war. So they for sure will win. And the Palestinian uh, um, uh, authorities must also be in solidarity with the people. This idea of uh, trying to tell us that the Palestinian people 
are terrorists. Our own Mao Mao here were terrorists. We knew that because the global community cannot even agree on who terrorists are. All the freedom fighters have been terrorists. Fidel Castro is a terrorist. Nelson Mandela is a terrorist. Amilcar Cabral is a terrorist. Thomas Sankara is a terrorist. Anybody that have been admired with their own people are still terrorists. Even now, Cuba is still under, you know, listed as one of the state sponsors of terrorism. So terrorism is only a term that is thrown around if you want to justify an occupation. The Palestinian people has a right to use any means necessary to break the bondage of the Zionist occupation. And in fact, the Communist Party of Kenya even takes a very radical stand that we do not even support the two-state solution. We did not allow the British to build their own small country in Kenya. The South African did not allow the, the, the Dutch population to build their own country. Why would the Palestinian allow that? In fact, at the very least, we need one country called Palestine where the Arabs, the Blacks, the Jews can, can coexist under a true democratic government of the majority and a secular state. That is what will bring stable peace in that part of the world. And what we will say that the Communist Party of Kenya remains in unwavering permanent and unconditional solidarity with the Palestinian struggles. And we know for sure, just like the British were defeated here, the Israel, however much support they get from the United States. In fact, Israel in itself is not an independent state. It's just an extension of the United States military complex. They will be defeated. They will suffer total humiliation. And we hope that this war that they think that they can justify that now they are saying they started the war, but we will win the war. For how long have they been winning the war? They have been, what will they, they, what will they do with 2 million people in Gaza Strip? They want to murder all of them? At the very end of it, they'll have to put boots on ground. And once they land there, then I think that there will be a total game changer for that conflict. So that is our position in regard to the Palestinian war of independence. And we hope that the events that are happening there will be more significant in terms of advancing the struggle of the Palestinian people. That's beautiful, Booker. Thank you. Well, I can't really add anything to that. You've, you've pretty much summed up our position as well, uh, done it very poetically there. So I'm going to thank you so much for spending so much time with us. It was very, very good of you. It's been really interesting. I could continue for a lot longer. Uh, we'll definitely have to get you back again. I, I hope you'll be able to um, for now. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. 
If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.